five weeks, something like that. And we've been talking about faith. And uh, I'll just premise again for those of you that's your first time here this morning. Um, when we talk about faith, I think we always take a bit of a risk because of people's expectations of what that actually means. Um, when I say the word faith to you, you have a picture. Okay, I used to teach on, on evangelism um, uh, for many, many years in, in different organisations and so on. And when I'd run my evangelism workshops, the first thing I would get people to do is I'd get everyone in their room to uh, close their eyes. And then I would, I'll get you to do it. Close your eyes for a second. I'm going to tell you a story. Close your eyes. When I was a little kid, we had this dog. And I loved this dog. It was a fantastic dog. And, and, and when I would uh, come home from, from school, I'd play with the dog. And my dad would come home from work. And the dog would stand up on its back legs and it would, would lick my dad uh, in the face and play with it and, and everything. It was a wonderful time. I really loved that dog. Anyway, I got bit by a red-back spider and died. So open your eyes. So when I said the word dog, how many of you saw the letters D-O-G in your mind's eye? How many of you saw a picture of a dog? What was your dog? Tell us, describe your dog. What sort of dog did you see? A brown dog? Yep, a brown dog. Who saw something other than a brown dog? What did you see? A white fluffy dog. How big? Little, tiny little white fluffy. Who saw something else? What did you see? Black and white terrier looking dog. What else have we got there? A Labrador. Okay, so we've just gone around the room here and everybody has seen different things. So, what that means is when I tell you my story about my dad and the dog, you're going to be thinking all kinds of things based on what you think that dog is. Say, for example, I say that that dog stood up on its back legs and would lick my dad in the face when he got home, and you're thinking about a little dog, you're probably thinking, gee, your dad must be about two feet tall. He must be a tiny man, you know? Um, or you're thinking this or whatever I say from that point on about that dog, you've already got a picture in your head. And when we speak about God to people, how many of you know people have a picture of God in their head? As soon as you say to somebody the word God, they've got a picture. As soon as you say to somebody the word Christian, they've got a picture straight away and they've painted you with that brush. So everything you're saying from that point on can be going way off the mark if you don't know what they mean by that word. You know, so when, when, I, when I used to go out and do street evangelism and people would say to me, are you a Christian? I would always say, well, you tell me what a Christian is first and I'll tell you if I'm one of them or not. Because I want to know what you're thinking first before you tar me with a brush and put your walls up, you see. And the reality is faith can be a bit like that too. When somebody gets up and says, I'm preaching on faith, we can have a picture of what that means. What is this person about to tell me? And for some of us, we get really excited. Maybe for good reasons, maybe for wrong reasons. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm going to justify the fact that you think you should have seven cars and 15 houses and, and be the richest person in the world. Maybe you think I'm going to, you know, that's what faith means to you. If someone's going to come along and say, yeah, it's okay for me to, to have 27 cars and 50 houses. And, 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 and so, you, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. But then there's other people here who don't believe that that's what faith's about. And so you're sitting there getting a bit apprehensive going, oh, hang on. You think you're going to say that? Well, I'm going to switch off now before you say anything. Um, some people think that faith is a license to print money. It's just a reality. I don't mean to criticise, but it's just a reality. I've, 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 I've watched the preachers myself. I've read the books. I've been through it all. Um, when I talk about faith, I'm talking about believing God to achieve, to do, to be everything that he has for me and he has for you. All right? Faith is a means by which we can connect up with God and bring the supernatural aspect, the nature of God, down to earth, where the supernatural, invisible realm of God can be brought down to earth. To me, faith is not a meal ticket to wealth, to richness, and to so on, all right? So I don't preach on faith a lot. As a matter of fact, in about 19, 20-odd years of preaching, this is the first time I've really spent time on faith, and it's for that reason. Um, faith can be a, 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 a very misused thing. 
So anyway, we, we spent a few weeks going over some stuff and laying a bit of a foundation. The foundation of our faith is always the character of God, who God is. It's not what God does, because what God does changes from time to time. Who God is will never change. God's character and nature will never change. His activities may change, his actions may change. This person got healed, that one didn't. Why? I don't know. This one went to the top, this one didn't. Why? I don't know. This one had success and this one didn't. Why? They both trusted God, they're both good people, they both got faith. Why? I don't know. What I do know is God's character and nature is good. So in both situations, God is fair, just, honourable, righteous. So I'm not going to criticise God, get bitter about God, twisted about God. So the foundation of our faith is the character of God. Who he is, not what he does. And we talked about the, the, how faith comes. And we looked at how faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. That spoken word of God. How do we, we position ourselves best to hear the word of God? Three simple things. Go to church. Pray. Read your Bible. It's not rocket science. It's simple stuff. And we position ourselves in a place to hear the spoken word of God. Those moments where the penny drops and all of a sudden something comes alive to you. And before it was up here, it was head knowledge and we knew about it, but all of a sudden it drops in here and you know that you know that you know you would die for that truth. You know that you know that you know that this, this is right, this is the way it is. And you'll change and reshape your lifestyle to fit around that because that's become more true than your experience. And when we live like that and we do that, all of a sudden our experience can begin to change. We keep our eyes on, on fact. We keep our eyes on fact and feelings will follow. We turn around and we look at feelings, take our eyes off fact and look at feelings, we all fall off. Nobody wants to live like that. So we've talked about some of these things. And then we began to look at characteristics of great faith. There were two people in particular in the New Testament where Jesus singled them out. We see in the Bible that that faith has this ability to open up doors for God to do miraculous things, supernatural things. We also see where Jesus goes to Nazareth and unbelief closed the door. He didn't say in the Bible that he didn't want to do anything there. It said he was unable to because of their unbelief. So there's something about faith, whether we like it or not, whether we're afraid of it, whether we're excited about it, there's something about this thing called faith that opens possibilities and closes possibilities. And we're all on this journey from up here where uh, Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. And over here is the other extreme, with God all things are possible. And so we're all somewhere on this journey. Some of us are over here, some of us are further up here. It doesn't matter who's here, who's there. What matters is that we just understand that we are on a faith journey, every one of us. And as long as we keep walking with the Lord towards all things are possible, well, then we're heading in the right direction. And that's where we're going. And that's what we've been talking about. And we looked at, at the, the Roman centurion who came and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, just speak the word. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I haven't seen great faith like that, not even in the nation of Israel, not even amongst the people of the book, the people of the law, the people that apparently know me, the people that have waited for centuries for me to come. I haven't even found that kind of faith amongst these people. And he singles out this Roman centurion. And a little further on, he also singles out uh, a woman who keeps badgering him and bugging him and going, you know, Lord, I, I need a miracle, I need a miracle. And he ignored her and... The disciples got annoyed and said, you know, tell this woman to go away because she's ruining the party and she's causing a scene and and in the end she's begging, begging and Jesus goes, it's just not fit for me to give the the children's bread to the dogs. And she goes, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus turns to her and goes, wow, that is amazing faith. So we've got these two examples in Matthew where Jesus says, this is amazing faith. And so we've been looking at that and drawing out of these people characteristics of great faith. And we've gone through about four of them. Today I want to speak about the fifth characteristic of great faith. And I want to divert a little bit to a different person. If I say to you, King David, what's the first thing you think about? 
Who was King David? Psalms. Who was he? If I say, if the Bible leaves us a legacy, and we could sum up really quickly, King David was who? He was man after God's own heart. Okay? Excellent. What if I was to say to you, Peter, a Paul, let's say Paul. If I was to say to you, Paul, he was the apostle of faith. Paul, there's this legacy in the Bible where we, we, Paul was the apostle of faith. Now, what if I said to you, Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Well, I want to stand here in a court of law this morning and refute that. I want to refute that. As a matter of fact, I reckon if Thomas was alive today, he could sue the church for defamation of character. If I, if I, if I thought I could make some money out of it, I would sue the church for defamation of character. No, I wouldn't. That's not true, actually. But um, I want to go through and have a little look. Thomas is a uh, misunderstood disciple. Thomas is a very misunderstood disciple, but Thomas is also an incredible example of a man of great faith. So I felt like I have to include Thomas in this list of characteristics of great faith. And the thing we see in Thomas is great faith continues to believe in the midst of disappointment. See, when I read the Bible, I don't see Thomas as a doubter. I see Thomas as a great example of a believer who's passionate for Jesus, who loves God, has believed God for something, and it hasn't happened. And has been left sitting in a place of great disappointment. We've all been there. And if you haven't been there, you will be there at some point in life. We all get disappointed. I'll read you the Oxford Dictionary definition of disappointment. It's sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfilment of one's hopes or expectations. Okay? Sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfilment of one's hopes or expectations. When we talk about faith, we're talking about hopes and expectations. And anyone that desires to build their faith, to live a faith life, to reach out to God in faith, to believe God in faith, is going to, at some point, come across a disappointment. Now, how do you deal with that disappointment? That's what makes or breaks us. That's what either builds into our faith or kills our faith. We are all going to be, if we have not been yet, be disappointed at some point in our journey with God. Maybe you've believed God for a healing for something and you've stood on the word of God and you're convinced that you know that you know that the Lord spoke to you and this person over here has the same problem and this person is healed and you're not. You're still battling. You're still struggling. Or maybe you believe God for a career change or a promotion or, a, or whatever it could be and this person got it over here and you didn't. Or maybe you have believed God for uh, you know, a myriad number of things. The list could go on. And it hasn't happened. And you're confronted with this. See, I know a lot of people. I've met a lot of people in my, my years of walking with the Lord. I got saved when I was 19. I'm 43 now. When I was 19, I got saved and uh, got six months later into a mission training organisation, spent 15 whatever years there, then seven, eight years as an associate pastor. And, and, and so we've been involved in a lot of different areas of, of the Christian life, the local church, uh, uh, parachurch organisations and so on. And the amount of people that I've seen in my time who have had a disappointment and walked away from God, walked away from God because a prayer didn't get answered, because a prayer wasn't answered the way they thought it should be answered. And so they walked away from God. That's the wrong way to handle disappointment. Let me tell you something. If something doesn't happen, 
If something doesn't happen, whose fault is it? Let me ask you another question. Is it necessarily someone's fault? Let me ask you another question. Does nothing ever happen? Does nothing ever happen? Or when nothing happens, does that just mean what you thought was going to happen didn't happen, something else happened that we call nothing? God is at work. God is doing things. God loves us with an everlasting love and God answers our prayers. He moves on our behalf. He does. He does. And all these questions I'm asking you, see, when we get saved, we don't check our brain out. We're still encouraged to use our head and to think. We just don't let it get in the way of our heart. We just don't let it become blockage between the spirit of God and, and, and our spirits. But we still need to think. And the way we deal with disappointment goes a large way to determining whether our faith will be built or our faith will go backwards. So I want to have a little bit of a look at Thomas today. <laughs> Thomas is only mentioned in Matthew, Mark and Luke as a member of the Twelve. The only time we hear about Thomas is he's numbered among the Twelve. There's not a lot that we know about Thomas from the Word of God. The only insights we get into Thomas are three situations that happen in the book of John. I'm going to have a bit of a look at those this morning. The first time that we see anything about Thomas is in John chapter 11. You turn with me to John chapter 11. <laughs> the death of Lazarus. And we start there in verse 1. A certain man was sick. It was Lazarus. Sister sent to Jesus in verse 3. said, Lord, the one who you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. And it goes on. Verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now, last time he was in Judea, he was almost killed. He was almost killed. And his disciples happened to be there. Not a great memory. Not a really good memory. Who's ever been in a situation where you're, you, you feared for your life? If somebody comes back to you and says, hey, do you want to go back to that moment? Let's go back there. Let's go again. I remember years ago being in central India and uh, took a team to this uh, uh, little uh, remote village out smack bang in the middle of nowhere. There was this little tiny church on the top of a hill. And, and all these villages around, and it was in the middle of what was considered a militant Hindu area of India. And, and I was responsible for this young group. They were probably, you know, 19 to, to 23, 24-year-olds, and so I'm kind of got this responsibility over them. But at the same time, I want to take them out and show them that they, there are people out there that do not know who Jesus is. So we jumped in a, in a bus, and I was working with a local pastor, and he said, oh, it's fine, we'll go to this particular area. We went out there. And went to this place and we preached. These, this young team did some dramas and things and shared a couple of testimonies and we had the pastor was interpreting and we preached and so Everything was going okay for a while, but as soon as we finished, a bit of a ruckus started in the back, uh, back of the crowd. And then all of a sudden, we didn't realise what it was at first, but little stones started coming in our direction. It was at that point that the pastor thought, wisdom from God, maybe we should move. So he rounded us all up and they took us to this little uh, uh, hut where this couple called us into their hut. And we've got a crowd of people following us. They're gibbering off in their local dialects and we can't understand, but the pastor can understand. He's getting very nervous. So they push us into this little hut. We duck our heads and we get in there and we're sitting there. And everyone, you know, everyone's trying to be upbeat and, and the pastor's trying to be upbeat. 
And then all of a sudden the pastor gets wind that there's a massive crowd coming down the street and they've got big rocks and big things and they're not happy with the fact that these little arrogant white people are here trying to tell their people that there's another God besides Shiva and Vishnu and Krishna. And so the pastor gets wind of this and he grabs the, grabs the closest team member and says to me, we need to go now. They pull us out, there's a crowd there, he brushes through the crowd, we dive out, we have a jeep, so I open up the back of the jeep, I make sure the team get in. My biggest problem was I rode there on a motorbike. So I close the jeep and I go back and I get on my motorbike through the crowd and as I did that, three guys came to me and one straddled the front of my motorbike and put his hands on the motorbike and he's straddling my front wheel and the other two stood right beside me like this. And I'm, you know, being real tough, Just I just sat on it like this and eyeballed him back. If you could have seen me on an x-ray on the inside... <laughs> I wasn't quite so cool. And in that moment, I feared for my life. I thought, I'm in all sorts of trouble here. At least if you throw a rock at a car, there's a window and things. I'm on a motorbike by myself without a helmet with nothing and a throng of angry, mad people around me. And anyway, the guy that was in the uh, Jeep decided to just start up the engine and he just planted his foot. He didn't care if he hit anyone. I don't even know if he did hit anyone. All I know is this Jeep came screaming past the front of my bike. The guy on the front of my bike panicked, let go and got himself out of the way and when he did I just dropped it into gear and bang, took off really, really quick. Now if somebody had to come back to me and suggest that a couple of days later, do you want to go back to that village again? I would have said no. I would have reacted just like those disciples. Yet I consider myself a man of faith. I would have said no, I don't want to go back into that situation. And this is what the disciples are faced with. Last time we were there, they tried to stone you and kill you and you want to go back there to pray for a guy who's Keep it in perspective, Jesus. It's one man. He's dying. It's one man. And you want to go back there and jeopardise the life of all of us? By the way, at no point here did Jesus even suggest that they had to come with him. That's not even inferred anywhere in the scriptures. But one man did infer it. Guess what his name was? Thomas. Goes on. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And you're going to go there again. And then Jesus goes through some stuff down in verse 11, uh, verse 12. Then his disciples said, look, if he sleeps, if, if he's only sleeping, if Lazarus is sleeping and it's not to death, then, then you know, let it go. It's not a big deal. However, Jesus spoke of death, but they thought he was speaking about taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, boys, Lazarus is dead. Okay, I'm trying to, you know, be spiritual, I guess. I'll just cut them a chase. The dude's dead. So I'm going back there to pray for this dead dude. So you can imagine what they're thinking. Well, the dude's dead now. It's not even like he's sick and you... He's dead. He's dead. And you could end up being killed if you go back to this place. I can understand their panic. I can understand what they're saying. And Jesus says, And I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Watch this, verse 16. Then Thomas, the doubter apparently, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, does that sound like a doubter? Does that sound like a man struggling with his faith? The rest of them were going, Jesus, don't go there. It's too dangerous. It's too this. Thomas is the one that says to the rest of the boys, you know what? We're going with him. And if he's going to die, we're going to die too. That to me sounds like a man of great faith. I think, I think we're guilty of defamation of character if we think that's a doubter. I think that's a man of great faith. Can we agree on that? Yep. Anyone that says they're going to go the yards and go the distance with Jesus and are prepared to die, I think that is great faith. So here's the first mention we have of Thomas. Thomas is not a doubter. Here's a man that's prepared to die for Jesus. 
Jesus didn't even say you have to come with me. He said no to the disciples. Hey, he's going because we're disciples. What does a disciple do? They follow Jesus. And if he's going back there, I don't care how dangerous it is. I don't care what the consequences will be. I don't care if my popularity is shot, my reputations. I'm going with Jesus. And you boys, you're coming with us. That's not a man of doubt. That's a man of great faith. If that's doubt, give me some doubt in my life. I wouldn't mind some. But it's not doubt. It's great faith. And then we go on. The next time that we see him is in John chapter 14. The next glimpse we get into Thomas is in John chapter 14. And we get this great statement, I am the way, the truth and the life. You know who brought that statement to the surface? The man called Thomas. John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. But where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Everybody's listening to this. I don't know if that makes a great deal of sense to you. But the crowd are sitting there listening. The disciples are sitting there listening to Jesus say this. You ever been in those moments where you've got questions about things but you're just a bit afraid to ask? I don't want to sound stupid. You know? I don't want to put my hand up because it could be a really dumb question. It could be like a really simple answer. Thomas didn't care about that. Thomas didn't give a... He didn't care. Thomas asks Jesus this question. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Don't tell me that I know where. I don't know where you're going. And how can I know the way if I don't know where you're going? So Thomas isn't afraid to ask the hard questions about his faith. Thomas isn't afraid to get answers. Thomas doesn't sit in some middle ground proclaiming a faith that he has no foundation for. He wants answers to his questions. He wasn't afraid to ask Jesus the question. Does that sound like doubt? Or does that sound like faith? How many of us have been brought up to believe that if you question, it's the wrong thing? I know people that feel like in God, you just don't ask questions. Faith is just this blind thing where you don't ask questions. What a load of baloney. Let me tell you something. God gave you the capacity to ask him questions. Therefore, I think he's okay with you doing it. Yep. I remember years ago, I had this uh, 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 encounter in in, uh, India and I came back from India and I was really disillusioned and disappointed with God because some things hadn't worked out the way I thought they would. They were working over here and then all of a sudden they weren't working here and I got a little bit bitter and twisted and disappointed with God. And I came back and I've shared the story with with, uh, a a lot of you in different messages and that over the years. But I came back here and a friend of mine was a lifeline counsellor. She was a really old lady. And I sent a letter out to all these Christian friends that were sort of supporting me and I said, look, here's the deal. I don't want anything to do with God anymore because I'm angry at him because I can't believe that there are poor people in India and God's... These little kids are born to drunken parents and it wasn't they didn't ask for that and it's not their fault. And, and I had all these things going through my head and I got anger and bitter with God and I caught a plane back from uh, India to Australia and decided, oh, gone. The hell with the whole church, the whole God thing. I don't want anything to do with it. That was my response to my disappointment. And this lady, sometime later when I came out of my haze and, and reconnected with all these great wonderful people and reconnected with God and everything, he never disconnected from me, by the way. He was always there. He showed me that. But years later, she sat me down and she said, you know what, Um, when you sent me that letter, I took it to my lifeline counselling school and she said I read it out to all the counsellors and I just, as a training thing, got them to say what would they say to a person. If someone rang you up on the phone and said this to you, how would you counsel them? And one, I don't even know her name, but I've never, ever, ever forgot this woman's advice. There was one young girl in the class and she said, this is what she said. She said, I'd say to that young man, you know what, 
God gave you the ability to question him. Therefore, he's okay when you do. He's okay when you do. I've taken that to heart. And, and I'm glad that sometimes when I have my prayer times, I'm glad nobody's here because you'd probably get really offended and angry at the way I speak to him sometimes. But it only comes out of a heart because I want answers. And I believe that God is big enough to give those answers. I believe God is big enough to take my humanity. And he always twists it around and by the end of it, it's like, oh God, you win again. You know, you're right, you're just, you're perfect. Your perspective is correct. So we see here Thomas is very inquisitive. And he asks questions. This, to me, is painting a picture of a man with great faith. He's prepared to die for Jesus. He's vocal about it. We don't, we, don't, we don't think of Thomas as being one of the most vocal people. But in both these instances, Thomas is quite vocal about his faith. He's vocal to the other disciples. Let's go. We'll die with him. We're all going with him, and if he dies, we'll die. That's a, that, that's a man of faith. And then in this situation, when all the disciples are sitting there, they're probably all thinking the same thing. Jesus, you're telling me we know where you're going. We actually don't have a clue. We're so far behind where you are, it's not funny. You know? But Thomas says, no, I want to be on the page. And I'm going to ask the question, how am I supposed to go where you are if I don't even know what you are talking about, Jesus? This is a man of faith we're talking about here. Thomas is a great example of faith. When we move on from there... And we get to the reality of why Thomas is considered a doubter. And we find that in John chapter 20. The third time, the third time that we have anything mentioned about Thomas. In John chapter 20. Now what's interesting about this is that Thomas is no different in his faith to any of the other disciples. You know, none of the other disciples believed until they saw. They didn't believe until they saw. But Thomas gets bagged on forever and a day because he didn't believe till he saw. Or is it just that Thomas was vocal enough to say it and the others weren't? John chapter 20. So the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb while it was dark. So all the stone had been taken away. We know the story there. And then Mary sees the risen Lord. <laughs> They're starting in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. The disciples weren't gathering together out of great faith. They were gathering together in this room because they were afraid. We've associated with Jesus. Jesus is now gone. And we're afraid. What does that mean? What if they now come after his followers? They're gathered together because they're scared. Thomas isn't with them, by the way. We see that in a few verses time. Thomas isn't in this room with them. They're gathering together in fear. Where's Thomas? Well, he's... Like, I don't know where Thomas is, but I know he's not gathered in a room in fear. Does that sound like a doubter? Am I making a good case? They're gathered together in a room assembled for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this... He showed them his hands and his side. How is that different to Thomas? How is that any different to Thomas? Yet we bag on Thomas as being a doubter. They saw his nail-pierced hands. They saw the piercing in his side. They saw the resurrected Jesus gathered in a place of fear. 
And Jesus, by his grace and mercy, still shows up. Isn't that wonderful? It's a wonderful thing about God. It doesn't matter how big our faith is. Sometimes it can be fear. But you know what? God in his mercy and grace will still show up at times. He'll still be God. Faith is not this thing where he goes, well, until you reach a certain point, I won't do anything for you. Until you... No, no, you've got a little bit further to go. If you can just cross that line, if you can just get a 6 out of 10 in faith... I will start to do some things in your world. But until you hit a six, I'm sorry, I won't do anything. Here are these guys gathered in fear, trembling upstairs in a room, and in his incredible grace and mercy, Jesus shows up. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and so on. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He goes on, he breathes on them, he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now verse 24, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. He wasn't there. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us why he wasn't there. Maybe Thomas didn't want to associate with fear-filled, scaredy cats. Maybe. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us much. All I know is they're all peeking out and up in a room for fear of the Jews and Thomas is not in there. I want, I want to borrow that. You know why? Because I think deep down Thomas is still thinking about Jesus. The death on the cross, the claims, the resurrection, everything. Because Thomas thinks about his faith. Thomas is a thinker. Thomas had the kind of faith that he was prepared to die with Jesus. So when Jesus died, I don't necessarily think that that would have thrown Thomas as much as maybe some of the others possible. I'm hypothesising a bit here. All I know is this. He wasn't in that room with these guys packing out for fear of the Jews. He was somewhere else. Then in verse 24, Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the print of his nails, just like you did, and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. So I don't know what happened in that period. All we know is they're packing death in a room for fear of the Jews. Jesus appears, shows himself to them. And then somehow they get out of that room and they find Thomas. Or Thomas finds them. We don't know. But what we do know is that Thomas then comes into contact with the other 11 and he says to them, you know what? I want what you had. I'm no different to you. You guys weren't going to believe till you saw it. Hey, I want to see something too. And something transpired where the next time they're together in a room, Thomas is there. That to me doesn't sound like a doubter. Why didn't Thomas go, well, that's not fair. Jesus, why did you show the other 11 and not me? I've had enough of this. Something happened. There's something of maturity about Thomas's faith where he didn't allow that to become a stumbling block. He didn't allow himself to get cynical about the fact that somebody else had seen the Lord and he hadn't. There was something about Thomas's character that allowed him to walk forward in his faith. And here we find him in a room upstairs. And then Jesus appears. And he said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's not putting Thomas's faith down in that context. What he's doing is he's upholding your faith and my faith as generations of people who aren't physically there seeing him. This is in no way a reflection of bad faith on Thomas's part. Otherwise, he would have said, 
Thomas, you only believe because you saw, and same with you, Peter, and Nathaniel, and Bartholomew. All of you are only believing because you saw. But he doesn't say that. They all believed when they saw. Thomas is not a doubter. Thomas is a person of great faith. Thomas is someone that shows us the correct way to handle disappointment when we're believing God for something and it doesn't happen. I want to finish up real quickly just with three things that I see about Thomas. Three things that help us to overcome disappointments and go forward and to build our faith. First thing is stay open to the faith of other people. Always stay open to the faith of other people. Don't close off and develop a cynical spirit. The disciples, the other 11 disciples were an example of what Thomas wasn't. They hadn't seen Jesus. And when they came to to Thomas and said, we've seen the Lord, I know he didn't get cynical and bitter. You know how I know that? Because seven days later, eight days later, he's in a room with them. How many of you know people who get bitter and twisted at God because something happened for someone else and didn't happen for them? Or it didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen, the way they thought it would happen. And we lose sight of the fact that God has a bigger picture than what we see. God has a bigger camera angle than we see. And sometimes what we think is the best is not the best at all. God has a better way, a better purpose, and a better long-term vision and plan as to why he's doing things the way he does. I don't always understand God. There's a mystery aspect to my faith, and I've got to get comfortable with that. And I think Thomas was comfortable with the mystery aspect of faith. He was comfortable with that. Don't let yourself get bitter and twisted and cynical because somebody else gets something. You know if you're like that because next time someone starts to talk to you about a success or a victory that they've got, ask yourself this question when you walk away. Am I in awe of the glory of God that he has answered a prayer? Or am I sitting here, bitter, and when you're talking about the glory of God and what he's done, all I'm hearing is what God doesn't do. Because it's not happening for me. Can you glory in somebody else's victory? Can you glory in somebody else's success? Can you see the goodness of God over here even when you're not feeling it here? Don't allow cynicism to get a foothold in your heart. It'll kill your faith. Stay open to the faith of others. Stay open to other people's journeys and other people's victories. The second thing is be honest about your feelings. I'll get the news out to come back. Be honest about your feelings. When we're disappointed, if you pretend you're not disappointed, guess what? That disappointment will come out in some way, shape or form eventually. You can't conceal it. You can't squash it down. It's like any other uh, feeling or emotion. They will come out eventually, whether it be in bitter, twisted behaviour, whether it be in, in, in judgement or cynicism or anger. It will come out in some way, shape or form. God wants us to be honest with ourselves and honest with Him. And you know what? Sometimes it helps to be honest with somebody else as well and sit down with somebody else and go, look, I want to talk to you because I can trust you. And I know you won't judge me. And I know you won't criticize me. But I just want to tell you I think God sucks. Because this, 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 this. God can handle it. God is not up in heaven going, oh, no, another one doesn't like me. Oh, he doesn't believe me. God is very, very secure in who he is. He can take our reality. He can take our honesty. 
Thomas was very honest with the Lord. Thomas was an honest person. And if you want to overcome disappointment, you've got to learn to be disappointed. It's uh, to, to be honest about your feelings. It's okay to say I am disappointed. It's not a sin. It's not a sin to say I'm disappointed. It's not a sin to say I'm angry. It's not a sin to say I'm hurting. It's not a sin to say I'm struggling. As a matter of fact, to open our mouth and say that, confess that, opens the doorway to restoration and healing. And the last thing that we see from Thomas, and I don't know how he did it, but Thomas stayed in a place of fellowship. When we're disappointed, it's so easy to want to pull ourselves away from the rest of the body of Christ. It's so easy to not want to come to church because I've been disappointed. I want to isolate myself from everybody else. I want to isolate myself from God. I want to try to isolate myself from Christians. I want to isolate myself from fellowship. Thomas didn't do that. Again, we don't know how it happened. We don't know what transpired. All we know is that he was not there that day when Jesus appeared to the eleven. Eight days later, he was in a room with them. One week later, he was in a room with them. He didn't even take a week off. He was smart enough to go, you know what, no. Because every time I, if I conceal my feelings, if I pull myself away from fellowship, if I stop being honest, if I do these things, if I shut off to other people's testimonies and other people's stories, if I do that, I'm heading my faith down this way. My faith's going backwards. But he wanted his faith to go forward. A little postscript to that. In AD 58, Thomas got off a boat in a country called India. After seeing Christ, he went throughout Persia preaching the gospel. He ended up in India in AD 58. In AD 72, this same man, this doubting Thomas, knelt down and prayed to the Lord while natives throw spears through him and killed him. It was in India a few years ago, and I got to go to this lovely church in Chennai. And there's a big Catholic church called um, St. Thomas Basilica. And I got to go in there some years back after being there and beautiful building and I was amazed overwhelmed by the feeling of peace and history in that place you walk around and you, there, there's reenactments of Thomas's preaching there and, and his, his, his martyrdom and things like that and there's this little you go downstairs and there's this little glass tomb and there's a, a fake model of a, of a man laying there and you know it's not Thomas it's just a model apparently his bones are buried under it but I remember seeing there and looking and just getting the reality you know this guy was real real. It was flesh and blood. And at that pivotal moment in his life, he could have gone the other way, but he didn't. He went on to become a martyr for Jesus. All of us, all of us, will and have faced disappointment in our journey with God. And if you're sitting here today saying you haven't faced disappointment in your journey with God, I will challenge you and say you're probably not being honest and real about it. Perhaps you're not being honest with yourself.
every one of those disciples would have been disappointed. Thomas is just the only one that we get a glimpse in. The reason we get that glimpse is because Don tells us at the end of his book, I've written these things so that you'll have faith. I want to pray this morning for people who have struggled or are struggling with disappointment. Perhaps there have been areas of your world, maybe there are right now, where you feel disappointed with God. Perhaps disappointed with yourself and your responses to God. Disappointment comes in many, many different forms and fashions. I'd love to pray. Me and Jackie want to pray this morning specifically for people who have struggled with this area of disappointment. Disappointment is not the end of the road. Disappointment can be the beginning of something fantastic for you, as it was for Thomas. Amen. Lord, I just want to thank you for this morning, God. I want to thank you for the truth of your word, God. Father, I want to thank you today, God, that Father, you have answers. Father, you have solutions, God. That, Lord, you are taking us by the hand, Father, and you are building faith in our hearts, God. But, Father, not a hyper, weird, shallow faith, but, God, you are building a strong, deep foundation of faith in our hearts and in our lives, God. God, a faith that the world cannot shake. A faith that circumstances cannot shake. A faith that situations cannot shake because it's grounded in reality and it's grounded in you. So, Father, I just want to pray for each person here this morning. Holy Spirit, if you have been speaking to our hearts, Lord, I just pray you would seal your word in our hearts right now. Don't let the cares and worries of life snatch it away. Don't let us leave this place today and move on to the next thing and forget about what you're saying to us, Lord. Father, in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together and worship you.